Welcome to another episode of St. Joseph's Workshop. We invite you to join us today as we explore how studying modern-day saints and Eucharistic miracles can inspire families in the faith. Welcome to St. Joseph's Workshop, building the church at home, a place where faith and family meet. Insight from a priest, a mother, and a whole bunch of others. I'm Emily Lugo. And I'm Father Jason Cargo. Join us as we enter St. Joseph's Workshop. Emily, I, I got to share with you a, a story that kind of is based on Eucharistic miracles. Now, I've I've gone to a couple Eucharistic miracle sites and I've read some of the stories, but and a lot of them have to do with uh, the Eucharist bleeding, right? And we'll get into some of these stories. So, and uh, this story of it's my own personal story. Okay, <laughs> uh, it had nothing to do with a uh, me holding a, a, a host and a, a, a true Eucharistic miracle happened or anything. But so this is I'm I'm in Corsicana. I'm at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Corsicana. I was there maybe only about two months, and um, I'm there to celebrate daily mass. Now at that time they had a small little daily mass chapel that was part of the the office. And there might have been like five people that was at that daily mass. And so I think it was in the morning. And so I woke up in the morning and, and um, it was a February day or January day. And so it was quite cold. The heater was on and everything. And, and um, went into the, to the, the church or into the chapel and, and started celebrating mass, had, you know, a great homily as, you know, I always do a great homily, right? Of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then had the offertory, and then uh, it was time for the uh, the actual consecration. So I was holding the, the the bread in my hands, and I was saying the words of consecration, and and uh, for the bread for the host, and you know then it, for those who are listening, if they don't know, like right as soon as I say the words of consecration with the host, you know the this is my body which is given up for you. That's the moment that that becomes the host becomes Jesus, the the body and blood of. Jesus. That's why the priest genuflects immediately after that, right? As a sign, this is no longer bread. No, th- where I'm genuflecting at the very presence of Jesus. So anyway, then I take the chalice and I, I say, this is my blood which is given up for you. And then I saw, I felt something. I saw something, and. What I felt was something around my nose, and what I saw was this, this red something that hit the corporal and splattered. And then I saw another red something, and I got this prof- profound nosebleed <laughs> right at that moment. And it was just, and I don't get nosebleeds. I'm like, I remember thinking. Jesus, this is supposed to be your blood, not mine. <laughs> Did you have a moment where you thought, like, is that my blood? Or is that the Lord's blood? No, exactly. I was like, did I just experience a Eucharistic miracle? <laughs> what was this? You know, I'm like, oh, my. But so now I'm like, what did I do? The last time I had a nosebleed, I was moshing at a Lollapalooza. And I, I had hit someone's head. My nose was smashed and broken and blood was going everywhere. But this was at Mass. It was simple. And um, so... <laughs> So I, after that moment, obviously I placed the host down, or the, the chalice down and now my nose, I'm like, hold my no, my head back. And, and then I, I get a couple Kleenexes and I kind of wad them in and I look like a walrus <laughs> and I finish the rest of mass with these Kleenexes hanging out of my nose. <laughs> so um, that's the closest thing uh, that I've had to some kind of crazy thing uh, like a bleeding host or anything. Yeah. I just had a bleeding nose. <laughs> you know, I'm sure the people who were there at that mass probably it became real to them. Like this is, you know, maybe this is not Jesus's blood here, but this is what we are consuming. Um <laughs> Well, that's interesting. I was wondering where this was going, where this story was going to go. If you had like a cut on your thumb that like transferred to the host or something. <laughs> no, no, no. no, it was a, a nosebleed. And I guess I had, I was probably dehydrated and I, all the, you know, uh, I didn't, and I was probably, it was a dry weather, all the heaters and all that. And so I just had a, a, a nosebleed there, but um, that was funny. I haven't had a nosebleed at mass since. That was my <laughs> only time. I'm just glad there was five people present and nothing more. So, um, but you know, um, that uh, that is a, a normal experience as a priest at, at the altar. I gotta say, you know, Emily, um, as a priest, when you're going through these things, 
all sorts of stuff happens when you're at the altar, right? And and you're public. You know, all sorts of biological things happen. <laughs> and you're public. And and I know like for me, I sometimes I have um I have a couple allergies, right? I have dust allergies and I have allergy to um uh mountain cedars, really big ones. So in November, December, uh, January. And so and mold can be as well. So with dust especially, like it just takes one breath of like dust mites and like I'll start, um, my nose will start running. And so literally it could be, I could be perfectly fine when I start mass and then I'll get this itch. And and it, it might be because I've breathed in a little bit of pollen or this or that. And because I'm like at the altar in praying over the, the gifts, Sometimes I can't do anything but just allow the the nose to run. Oh <laughs> and it's so humbling. It's like, oh, oh my goodness. And and sometimes it happens so quick. It's just like, you know, it's not like a, a buildup. It's just like I feel the itch and, and a couple seconds later there's full drain coming. You know, well, from the pews, I can say that we don't see that. <laughs> so you have just let your secret out. <laughs> Maybe people will be watching for it. <laughs> But that's interesting. I mean, I guess it's the reminder that you're the humble servant, you know, um, of the Lord. And um, but it's kind of interesting just thinking about, I guess, like for a moment, putting myself in your perspective, you know, where you are, that every time that you say mass, you know, that is a Eucharistic miracle that's happening. And that the fact that you're in the midst of that and kind of makes me wonder the people who have been in the middle of these you know, miracle stories, I guess there's somewhere, you know, we'll talk about that have happened in the midst at the moment of consecration. Yes. Um, others, you know, after the fact, but I wonder if the, if people just recognized it immediately and just knew like, this is the Lord, this is, this is God here in this moment. I, I, I don't know. I can't imagine that. Cause you don't expect it. I don't think that you go up to mass expecting that a Eucharistic miracle is going to happen. Uh, and, uh, a well, visible <laughs> Eucharistic miracle is going to happen, you know, every single day when you go. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I do not uh, expect a, a, a true Eucharistic miracle to happen. Uh, transubstantiation is kind of the ordinary moment where it's uh, awesome. The sacrament happens, right? Where you have the the bread and wine turning to the body and blood of Jesus. But when we talk about Eucharistic miracles, we're talking about uh, outward, visible, extraordinary sign that this is the body and blood of Jesus, right? So like the bleeding hosts or something similar. Uh, I think in India, there was one where there's a, a face of Jesus that appeared on the host or something. Um, so that's what we're, we're really talking about uh, with re- Eucharistic miracles. And no, I do not go into mass expecting a, a Eucharistic miracle to happen. Um, I go into every mass expecting that truly the bread and wine will turn into the body and blood of Jesus. And uh, that's my faith. That's our faith. And that's the the beautiful thing. Uh, and it, and it does every single time. You know, and I, I think something that's so important is, as you said, that's our faith. Like as Catholic, that's the core of who we are, that belief that the bread and the wine um, become the body and the blood of Christ. And Something that I think that this is such an interesting topic to talk about, especially for families who have children, is just taking this mystery of our faith that we we believe by faith that we can't see and making it tangible. To me, that's something that's so powerful that, you know, it's faith is not something that can be contained in a box. But yet there have been scientists, scientific studies done um, proving that these miracles truly have transformed into flesh and blood. Yes, exactly. Um, And to me, you know, this is nothing that I never learned about as a child in my faith formation, CCD classes. We didn't talk about that. I mean, honestly, I think maybe college age or even afterwards was the first time I really started learning about this. And so this is something I thought would be really interesting for us just to kind of talk about for a while and for families, especially if you have anyone um, who are preparing for first communion, just it's so amazing to hear these different stories and it really becomes real. So I, I thought we could maybe talk about that a little bit more. And, and, you know, maybe you can just start us out a little bit, Father Jason, you know, you already told us what transubstantiation means. I don't know if you want to go into that more, or maybe just let's jump into some oh, of the sure, definitely. Uh, so we hear in the Catholic Catechism in number 1374, in the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained. 
So transubstantiation means that through the prayer of the, the church uh, and through the consecrated minister, which is the priest or bishop, that, uh, that the bread and wine of its very substance becomes the very body and blood of Jesus. So though the, the accidental properties are still of bread and wine, what I mean by that is when we look at the host that has been consecrated, it still looks like a piece of bread, right? If we smell or, or look at uh, the chalice after it's been consecrated, after the, the priest prays the prayers, this is my body, which is given up for you. This is my blood. It's given up for you. Do this in memory of me. It still smells and looks like wine, right? Those are what we call the accidental properties. But we believe fully and truly that the actual substance has uh, changed. That's what transubstantiation, the changing of the substance, right? So it's no longer substantially bread and wine, even though it might look like it, but it is the very substance of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And that substance is always present until the accidental properties of bread and wine no longer exist. And what what I mean by that is that, um, for instance, if, if I get, uh, if I pray over that chalice and, um, of, of wine and uh, do the Eucharistic prayer, then that chalice of wine becomes truly the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus. And as long as it contains those accidental properties of wine, looks, smells, etc., of wine, then the body and blood and soul divinity of Jesus as its substance is there, right? But what if I pour that chalice of wine? Now, I would not do that. What if I pour this, but I would not do this, but if I pour this, this chalice of, of the body and blood of, of our Lord Jesus with accidental properties of wine, the, the consecrated chalice, if I pour that into a swimming pool, what would happen? Well, all those accidental properties would be diffused so much so that you could not distinguish that there's any kind of accidental properties of wine. So at that very moment that the very uh, body, blood, soul, and divinity, the substance would no longer be there, right? So um, we do that with hosts that fall on the ground. One of the things that we do is we we put them in, in a uh, kind of a water dish and we allow them to soak and then we, we kind of dissolve as best that can uh, the 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 host into this water because until it becomes something that's not no longer a host right and at that moment the body and blood of our Lord is no longer present so um, so transubstantiation is just that right so it's the accidents remain the same of bread and wine and that's why when you when you taste the uh, the chalice it it tastes like wine right doesn't taste like blood. Um, Thanks be to God, it doesn't taste like blood. <laughs> that reminds me, Emily. You know, I was doing this first communion uh, practice down in, in in Italy when I was there studying. And, and you know, I was giving each of the little kids a taste of what the Holy Communion would be like. So in a little Dixie cup, they would have this little taste. And so because, you know, you want them to experience it first. And I'm expecting all these little second graders would have all sorts of gross faces, right? <laughs> you know, as they take in this, this, uh, this wine. The very first person uh, takes the Dixie cup and kind of lifts it up to his mouth and, and then t- takes a little bit in his mouth and kind of mixes around his mouth and he says, Eh, buono. <laughs> <laughs> it is good <laughs> in Italian. You know, it's like only in Italy would a second grader do that, right? <laughs> we don't have that experience here. So anyhow, so that's a that's kind of what transubstantiation is. Um, for that reason, we actually have um, it. We actually stored the holy host in the tabernacle because we believe that the presence of Jesus, the very body, blood, soul, and divinity, is still in the host, even after the prayers have finished, right? And that's what distinguishes us from a number of different, like let's say the Anglicans or some other uh, different Protestant 
communities that have uh, a belief in some sort of uh, body of Christ. Now, some of it's just symbolic, but like the Lutherans or Methodists, they'll have communion services, but it's all symbolic. But like the Anglicans, they believe while you're doing the prayer, it becomes the very body and blood of Jesus. Well, we believe fully and completely that this transforms, it transubstantiates into the very body and blood of Jesus. And so we store that in the tabernacle and we can go and and visit. That's why we also have adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. And we genuflect and kneel before the sacrament. You know, thank you so much for for expounding all of that out. And a um, couple of things that came to my mind, you know, one is you're talking about how you know, if some, if you were to drop the communion host, you would put it in water and let it dissipate until it's no longer the substance. Now, isn't it true that after that fact that that water would be poured out into the ground, isn't that what you normally do? Correct. Exactly. So we, as I mentioned, we'd never throw (laughs) into a swimming pool, (laughs) uh, the chalice into a swimming pool. Yes. We have something called a sacrarium that goes straight into the into the ground. So it doesn't go through the normal septic system. It's a sink, a special sink that goes, um, deep into the ground and then it and then um the water and it would just be absorbed by the the ground at that point so it's a it's a dignified way of of taking care of holy water uh, as well as uh the the purified remains of um of the chalice and and of the the host that might have been in that moment um being dissolved mm-hmm. Um, whenever I was confirmed back a long time ago, <laughs> um, I think I was in 10th grade when I w- received my confirmation, but I was one of the first youth who became a Eucharistic minister at my home parish. Awesome! And so that was, I guess the first time that I ever saw that back, you know, behind the scenes process of how do you do the purification of the vessels? And again, this was before a lot of the changes had taken place, but that was the first time that I saw, um, the fact that you would, they had that special sink where the water would go directly into the ground. And I think that was my fear. I never wanted to, to be the Eucharistic um, minister of the cup because I was so afraid that it would spill. Like, oh, what will I do in that moment? I mean, regardless, I, I, I always felt nerves. I think my hands are always shaking whenever I had to um, distribute because I just felt the honor and such humility in that moment. But I definitely had that fear of, oh my goodness, I hope nothing drops or anything. There's a lot of pressure. Oh, absolutely. I- as a priest, I had those fears too. So I had, you know, my, the, the, the greatest fear is to, to drop the host and, and drop the chalice. And, um, I don't have to fear that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> have you? <laughs> because that has happened. Yes. Um, I felt, I felt really bad one time. Um, and you might notice when I'm at the altar, uh, I've learned to be very, very careful, especially with my sleeves. Anytime I'm reaching for something, I, I hold my sleeve and so next time, maybe the listeners can kind of watch me at the altar, but I'm very, very careful with that. Um, and the reason is because uh, one time, uh, this is in Corsicana, once once again, you learn these things, and I, I wasn't holding my sleeve, and the sleeve of the alb caught the handle of the ciborium as I was turning. The altar server is right there, and the entire open ciborium. Now the ciborium is, is the dish that has all the consecrated hosts was picked up and went over the altar server. Oh no. And I've never been so petrified (laughs) and I've, that altar server was so, he just stood there and I guess he got showered by Jesus, you know, (laughs) as a way of looking at it, but he just stood there and he, and he just looked at me and he was like, oh, what do I do? I was like, don't move. <laughs> and in moments like that, you know, the humility of it, um, all we can do is pick Jesus up. Right. You know, just be like, um, the, just like uh, the people, Simon Cyrene and the Blessed Mother Veronica on Jesus's passion and just pick him up. Um, but uh, in this case, I picked him up off the hair of this boy, <laughs> off the shoulder, <laughs> off his shoe. and every, But, you know, those things do happen. Um, but and that's why I'm very, very careful. Um, anytime I'm reaching around the altar, I, I hold my, my, my sleeve, and you'll notice that. Um, I had one other time, and this was my other um, 
sadly, I mean, my other fear would be, you know, spilling the precious blood. And uh, this was not because I was in a rush. I just had bad hand-eye coordination that day. <laughs> and um, I reached for the, the chalice, and I don't know what happened, but I didn't get the chalice. Wow. Instead, the chalice, which was half-filled, went over and uh, spilt over the, the altar. But, you know, we know that that can happen, human frailty. We give God all the, the reverence and the love but we also also have to remember that God, in his love for us, chooses to put himself in that place willfully uh, so that we may be one with him. So he, he wants our reverence, but he understands that there's going to be uh, some of these things that will happen. This gets us to, um, I want to talk about one of our Eucharistic miracles. And uh, I want to talk about the Eucharistic miracle uh in Poland, in Lanika, Poland, at St. Hyacinth Church. One of the most recent Eucharistic miracles, Emily. So uh, it happened on December 25th, 2013. And ultimately what happened was a host fell on the ground. Uh, and I, to me, I think this really is a highlight of uh, why we have such should have such great reverence for the Holy Eucharist. And uh, we don't want any host or any particles to fall on the ground. And if, if, it, if the host does, we have a process of, of how we care for that. Um, but uh, in this particular church at St. Hyacinth Church in Lenica, Poland, a uh, host fell on the ground. They, so they took the, the host to the back and placed it in some water and ultimately the host began to bleed. And this is in 2013. This is a modern day. You know, a lot of yeah, times we think recent. of, we think of these Eucharistic miracles. We're thinking, oh, this is something in the eighth century or, or, or the ninth century, right? This is a thousand years ago. No, this happened just eight years ago, right? And my scientific mind, Emily, I'm thinking, okay, well, um, you know, that's probably mold, <laughs> You know, so uh, that that began to, to grow. And actually, I think uh, we actually had something like that here in Dallas where there was something very similar and it had a reddish look, but there was um, tests that were done and it, it was uh, simply a, a sort of mold that had developed. But uh, that's not the case in this situation because they did those tests. And it, first of all, it looked like blood was coming out from the host itself. The host was preserved. It didn't really dissolve. And it looked like blood was coming out of the host itself. And um, they did a whole bunch of analysis on this. And they ultimately discovered that it was um, blood from the heart tissue and that it was AB blood and that it, um, they did diagnosis it as it wasn't from the surface. It was coming out from within the host uh, was uh, the diagnosis. So a whole series of different uh, spectral analysis that was occurring in, in, for this uh, particular host. Once again, we're thinking 2013. We have a whole bunch of different scientific data uh, or means through which we can create scientific data for this. So that's what actually happened with this uh, particular host. And so it was deemed a Eucharistic miracle. I mean, you do the scientific uh, re uh, assessments on it. You, you say, this is what it is. It's, it's now um, it, the, the host is heart tissue and it is blood. It is a B blood that comes from the heart. And, and wasn't it Father Jason that, that AB blood type was what was also found on the shroud of, of Turin? Like that the is correct. Yes. So that's Jesus's blood, right? <laughs> Exactly. So uh, to me, I think that's just a very, um, to me, because this is the 2013, this Eucharistic miracle happened in Lincoln, uh, Poland. Uh, they did all the scientific research on this uh, right then and there and proved that it, it is a Eucharistic miracle. So the question, Emily, is why do we have these kind of Eucharistic miracles? Why? Well, we'll have other Eucharistic miracles we'll talk about, but 
why do you think God is allowing the, these Eucharistic miracles to happen? Wow, great question. Um, you know, I you know it's interesting in, in that case in particular because it was the fact that you know the the host was dropped on the ground. Um, it happened on Christmas on Christmas Day. You know, yes. so is that like the revelation of Christ coming to the world? Um, that reminder, I don't know. I know that there have been some cases with Eucharistic miracles where it's happened because of doubt, whether it's doubt of the priest, you know, really struggling with, um, you know, truly believing that that was the body and blood of Christ, and almost as a result, you know, Lord, the Lord offering them that gift of of saying, "Yes, this is me. Um, I am present in this host." Um, but it, it's something that's so fascinating because, as you said, you know, there have been cases within your own priestly ministry where you've had these, you know, incidents and it's not as if every time that that happens, a Eucharistic miracle comes about. So, mm -hmm. so yes, why is the Lord, you know, picking these moments? Is it because of the fact that maybe faith is, is dwindling in that part of the world? Um, you know, is it his gift to them to have some sort of renewal? I don't know, maybe. So that's what I would imagine. And that's what I believe is that exactly. So there's a... Uh, a lessening of faith in his Eucharistic presence. And so at those moments in time, the Lord in his mercy gives this spectacular sign, this miracle to bolster faith. Um, I would not be surprised if sometime in the next decade we have a Eucharistic miracle in the United States because we have been losing our belief in the, the real presence of the Holy Eucharist. We've not been uh, treating our Lord with the dignity and reverence that we we need to provide uh, him. Especially, you know, right now with the pandemic, you know, we are seeing that while the mandate, you know, has not been or has is, is still in place that people have the dispensation that they don't have to come to mass. Um, we know and see that people are going to the workplace. They're going to concerts and life and, you know, it's kind of picking up as normal, but yet they're not necessarily coming back to the church. Um, and so you do see that, like, mm -hmm. is there just that complacency, you know, if you truly believe that Lord, our Lord is present in the Eucharist, then how could watching the mass on television or on YouTube suffice? Right. You, know, you would be hungering for him to be in his presence or to receive him, you know, if, if capable. Um, so you're right. Like maybe there is just this, this sense of like apathy that's going on right now for many Christians and many Catholics. And I, I agree with you 100%. Like, I would want to receive the Lord, you know? I mean, this is, who would not want the body and blood of Jesus within them, right? So body and soul, I mean, we want our Lord. And uh, so even if uh, we're watching on Mass, we would want a Eucharistic minister to come by and, and bring us uh, the Holy Host, right? So I do want to say briefly that, uh, you know, I mentioned a lot about transubstantiation, how the accidental properties of the bread and wine remain, even though the substance becomes the very uh, body and blood of Jesus. In Eucharistic miracles, what happens is the accidents become what the substance is. You know, and that's, that's something that to me is really interesting, and especially if you talk about people who are doubting their faith, is that all of a sudden faith, which is like an intangible unseen can become seen, can be studied right. scientifically. And that's the thing that really struck me when I was looking at some of these different Eucharistic miracles that were happening um, is just the ability of science now to learn so much. Like I was reading one of the studies that happened in Argentina when um, our current Pope, Pope Francis was then Archbishop. And uh, let's see, I think there's a couple, there's two different ones, but one of them took place in 1996. And um, a similar situation, I believe the host was dropped, so they placed it in water, put it in the tabernacle, um, and after a couple of weeks, noticed that it, it started, I think in that one, is it, actually, it was actually fragments okay. of the host, so that it kind of became the substance, you know, like a fleshy substance. And so what struck me when I was reading the different scientific discoveries in that was that they, you know, gave it to this... Um, a famous cardiologist and forensic pathologist, I think his name was Dr. Frederick Zugabi. So he did not know what this, where this substance came from. <laughs> it came from the Catholic Church. You know, he just thought he was studying these tissues. And it's very detailed, the fact that he was able to identify that the fragment, and um, the material is a fragment of the heart muscle, specifically a part of the left ventricle, which um, they say is the muscle that is responsible for the contraction of the heart, um, which gives the blood to all of the body. body. Specifically the left ventricle. Specifically, wow. which is the life source. <laughs> yes. you know, it's what gives the blood to all of the body. And, you know, and, and even in studying it, they were able to find out um, 
that there were white blood cells, which is really only present in live tissue. So it wouldn't have been something where it was, you know, like a dead tissue. It was taken from the source when it was still living and still pumping. So, so Emily, that is so cool. I mean, think about this. Okay. So it's one thing like to have um, someone, you know, cutting a piece of the heart and putting it in and pretending it to be a host, right? But this is live tissue, right? And there, some Eucharistic miracles are actively bleeding. Like, right. Uh, it, this is, in white blood cells, this shows that, of course, because the Eucharist is truly the, the living body and blood and soul and divinity of Jesus, right? And so if a Eucharistic miracle occurs in the, and we now, the accidental properties match the substance, then of course there would be white blood cells. I mean, I just find it very fascinating, like all of the details that they're able to find. And the fact that in many of these miracles that have happened, you know, even years after it's taken place, it seems as if, at least what I've read, that the it is coming from the heart tissue, this, this flesh, this blood. It's AB blood type. And there's just so many similarities in all of it. And um, it, it reminds me of this reflection that I heard once uh, around... Um, around Lent and it was talking about Jesus and kind of goes into very great detail what was scientifically happening with his body because of the passion that he went through and how it was kind of breaking down. Um, and it, and I can't, I don't have it with me. I can't read it, but basically it kind of comes down to the very end. It says he died of a broken heart. So just, it just kind of crushes me. Like this, this is our Lord who gave his life for us, like whose heart, um, you know, broke for us, but yet here he is offering us this gift and these various miracles to show us that he still beats for us, that he yes. loves us and he's longing for us to join him and be with him. And I just think it's amazing for, I think for anyone who's doubting and has that scientific mind, like start looking at these different miracles and read the different scientific studies done on it. Absolutely. And, and I, I, so I like what you said, like his heart beats for us. It still beat is beating for us in these, in the Eucharist, right? Um, one of the images that I, I love uh, of, of the Holy Eucharist is, is the, the sacred heart just, um, continuing to, to beat out a love for us. So a lot of times when I, in my own prayer, as I'm sitting before the blessed sacrament, I'm imagining, uh, the heart of Christ there in the tabernacle and, but quite literally in in these Eucharistic miracles, we see physically that it is the heart, mm-hmm. right? So we're just not um, uh, using our mind to imagine and we're not just having the the firm sacramental belief that yes, the Eucharist is the, the core of who Jesus is, the heart of who he is. But now we have in these Eucharistic miracles, the very scientific and accidental proof. When I say accidental, that's a Thomistic language, but the the outward, visible, um, tangible, sensual experiences of uh, of the very heart of Christ. Yeah, I think it's amazing. You know, I know that even within my own spirituality and prayer life, you know, I have you know times when I go into adoration and I see um, our Lord in the monstrance. You know, and I pray and I ask Him, like Lord, show me Your face. Let me see You. Um, let me believe that you are there, that you are present. And, um, you know, I'm not going to say that I had like this glowing vision of, I saw, you know, the face of the Lord, but I felt his presence, you know, in the midst of that. And I think that for all Catholics, that's something that we should believe, you know, when we're going to mass and if we go to adoration, you know, pray for that. Cause not everyone has this experience, um, you know, of, of this visible Eucharistic miracle. Um, but we're all called to have that faith, that humility to believe that he is there and he is present. Yes. Um, and, and Emily too, when we're receiving Holy communion, uh, receive Holy communion as we receive Jesus, right? Um, you know, one of the things I really like is when people receive Holy communion by way of their mouth or by the way, their tongue, um, not everyone receives in that way, but, uh, we're given the indult or the special permission to receive by the hand as well. Uh, but every single person that I see that receive by way of mouth, they have a gesture of humility and reverence. Um, I wish I could say that with people who receive by way of hand. Um, I would say um, maybe maybe 15 to 20% of those who receive by hand show that there's an extraordinary understanding that this is truly the body and blood. They're creating a throne for our king for our Lord. Um, 
so that would be my challenge to everyone is, you know, before we approach the Blessed Sacrament, we're supposed to all do an act of reverence, right? Um, the church says in the U.S., the United States Conference of Bishops says that normal act of reverence is to to bow, do a profound bow, and then to receive standing. But, you know, some people might do a, a genuflection uh, or as a sign of reverence. Um, but absolutely everyone should do some sort of sign of reverence and then receive the Eucharist as they're receiving Jesus, because they are. And then uh, proclaim, amen, I believe. Um, you know, Father Jason, one of the things that I think um, that are really important for families to consider is, especially for those who have been away from the church through the duration of the pandemic, is how do we instill that sense of reverence um, in the Eucharist within our children? Like I know myself, like I had one, one of my children received his first communion this last year. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how, for those who maybe received it at the very beginning of the pandemic, you know, did, have they been coming back to mass regularly since then? Or was it, that was the one time, how do we, my son, and my son has never even received the precious blood, you know, so how do we make that, um, a part of our family life where we're really showing the reverence? I, th I think that's a challenge that all families are going to, are going to face, um, and coming back, um, even, f you know, for those who don't, didn't necessarily experience first communion, but just in general, if they've been away, um, I think families are going to have that monumental task of really placing the belief in what it is that we teach as as Catholics, because if they don't believe that, you know, and that's the heart of our faith, then are they really yes. are they really Catholics? You know, what are what are our church numbers going to look like? You know, five ten years from now, as a result of this pandemic and just the distance that people have had from us. You know, I have a couple thoughts on that. Um, I think one practice that families can really do, which would be very helpful to increase Eucharistic faith is every time they drive by a Catholic church, one of the family members says, hey, look, there's the Catholic church, or there's St. Joseph Catholic church, there's All Saints Catholic church, there's St. Mark Catholic church. And then you make a sign of the cross. That is a, um, a very uh, simple way to acknowledge the Eucharistic presence uh, that is found within every Catholic church. So I think that's one way um, going about your ordinary things. I think sitting at home when you're having meal, I, you know, <laughs> sometimes I, I, I just crack myself up, you know, so, you know, cause my life is so surrounded by the church and, and everything, you know, I, I've gone into movie theaters and I've genuflected, <laughs> you know, just going into, you know, just the ritual because it felt like, oh, I'm in a big room. So um, I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I genuflecting? This is crazy. This is going to be a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, I've caught myself like I, I'm at a, I'm sitting down at a meal and I get a piece of bread and I break it. And I'm like, I just broke that. Like I break the Eucharist. I'm like, <laughs> but, but going to the, the meal and the bread, um, I think that could be a, a real simple tradition that can be done in the family, in the home, is that uh, maybe part of the, the meal experience or part of the, the Sunday or Saturday meal experience is that the, the father or the, the oldest in the, the family, you know, takes the bread and, and breaks it and then says, you know, this, this bread is just simply bread. But this should remind us at this dinner table of the bread of life, the Holy Eucharist that gives us eternal life, which is only found in the, the Catholic Church uh, or other, uh, yeah, the, the, the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church. And so uh, so it's not saying that that bread that he's breaking right now is the Holy Communion, but, but it, it points us, it becomes a sacramental at that moment. And I think families can do that at their home so that it, it does increase that Eucharistic thirst and hunger. You know, Father Jason, um, I want to say maybe you could talk to me a little bit about um, one of our newest saints on the way, Blessed Carlo Acutis. Um, talking about him, uh, for those of you who don't know, you know, he is a young Italian who died of leukemia at the age of 15, and he had a hunger um, for the Eucharist. And actually during his life, um, you know, devoted much of it to helping to raise awareness. So I don't know if maybe you can talk to us a little bit about who he was um, as a model for our young ones to kind of look to in their own faith journey. Yeah, this this guy is like awesome, man. Um, so I think it, 
every teenager should know about Blessed Carlo Acutis. So um, he's kind of known as the first millennial saint, right? Yeah, it's awesome. So uh, all those millennials out there, they can kind of love him. Um, so 2006 is when he died of leukemia. So he's um, certainly if you're suffering from cancer or you know someone, you can ask Blessed Carlo Acutis to, to pray for them, intercede for them. But the neat thing about Blessed Carlo Acutis, we know millennials know all about computers, right? So yes. <laughs> uh, Blessed Carlo was so into um, computers, the internet, computer games, etc. He really enjoyed, now it was all, because he's a saint, he had everything disciplined out, right? Um, like, I don't know, I, I've given up playing strategy games. I used to play like Civilization and Age of Empires and stuff. I know that's really dating, you know, this going back to the, the late 90s and early 2000s, but the reason is because, you know, actually that was the last time I played it. It was like right before seminary. And the reason is because I was playing it and I was like, oh, I'm just going to take two hours to play this game. And the next thing I know, the sun was rising. And <laughs> I was like, what happened? And I did that like two or three times. I said, okay, I can't play this game anymore. And um, so, yeah, I do play like little sports games and stuff on my, my phone from time to time. But um, Blessed Carlo didn't have that problem. He knew how to discipline himself. And so he would play uh, just a, a little bit, uh, but he would then uh, do other things. But he was a devout Catholic, loved the Eucharist, loved the Holy Mass. And one of the things that he did, this is so cool, is he created a whole website uh, that was devoted to Eucharistic miracles. Um, you know, we're talking like a, a young teenager who so loved the Lord and enjoyed this new tool of the, the internet and computers and that he combined the two and the two passions met in this website uh, on Eucharistic miracles where he detailed the hundreds of Eucharistic miracles throughout the history of, of the world. And uh, he said that Jesus is my great friend and the Eucharist my highway to heaven. That is awesome. I wonder if he was sing singing that song, Highway to Heaven, <laughs> as, he, as he was uh, um, thinking of this. But no, that's a great phrase. Jesus is my great friend and the Eucharist. The Eucharist is my highway to heaven. So blessed Carlo Acutis, uh, we can pray for him for greater uh, love for the Eucharist. We can pray uh, uh, that he can intercede for us so that we can have a greater love. We can pray that also for those who have cancer, that he can intercede for them as well. And the cool thing is, Emily, we are going to have Blessed Carlo Cutis, um, his, we're going to have an exhibition of his website here at St. Joseph. I, I'm really pumped about this, right? So September 18th to October 1st, so like the last two weeks of September, we are going to have a display that will have over a hundred posters of these different Eucharistic miracles. We'll have it in our forum area where people can kind of walk around and view uh, and read about these Eucharistic miracles, educate themselves and increase their hunger. And then obviously ask Blessed Carlo Acutis to pray for them. You know, I think that this is such an amazing thing that we're able to offer here at St. Joseph. Um, you know, as we talk about just the impact that learning about these Eucharistic miracles can do for people's faith to be able to, you know, take it to a different level and to truly understand what it is that we teach. Um, being able to walk through the forum and look at the different displays that have, you know, the different um, miracles, where it took place, what happened. It has like all of the details there. I think as a family to be able to do that with your kids um, or even even if you're, you know, your kids are grown, whoever you are, whatever age or stage you are at in life, to be able to come and look at it, I think that that can be um, so powerful just to remind us, what are we all about? What do we believe as Catholics? Um, and then honestly, as a mother, you know, I know that Blessed Carlo, he was an avid soccer player as oh, well. Oh, yes, he was. You know, Outdoorsman so, and yeah, soccer player. Yeah, I mean, and just to show, like, it's not a pipe dream when we say we want our kids to be saints or, you know, like, we're all called to sainthood. Like, truly... God would love it if we all became saints. You know, that is, you know, we're all on this journey. And so to be able to not only show your children, you know, these Eucharistic miracles that took place, but then to also show them, you know, this young teenager who had this deep faith, but he was a normal kid. You know, mm -hmm. he liked the internet. He liked video games. He played soccer. Um, but yet, you know, he is on this road to sainthood. So even to, to kind of 
raise that awareness for your own kids, you know, help them envision, you know, do you think God is calling you to sainthood? Like, you know, what are the gifts he's given you? What, what could you use in your life to glorify God or, you know, help them vision it because this all of a sudden becomes a reality. It's not just back then in ancient times. No, it's, we're all being called to be saints even today. Yeah. You know, and I think too, Emily, that, uh, this, uh, a lot of times we think of the saints and we think of someone who is just living in the church, right? <laughs> and they're just spending six hours a day in the church and they're, they're not having any other life or anything like that. Right. And uh, a lot of your young people and our children, they're like, man, I, but I like soccer. I like the outdoors and I like uh, this and that. And I like computer games. And I think blessed Carlo Cutis is a sign to all of us that the Lord simply wants all our activities to be for his glory and for us to to remember him uh, throughout our day that he is the god of all but he he wants the good activities in our life right so he wants us to recreate he wants us to 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 have hobbies he wants us to to work but he wants him he wants all that to be done for his glory right and not for our glory right yeah i love that I think uh, before we kind of finish up, Emily, we've talked about Eucharistic miracles, and there's one really important Eucharistic miracle we have to talk about, and that's the Eucharistic miracle of Lanciano oh, yes. and Orvieto. And, um, and the story behind that, why it's important, is because we celebrate a major feast day every single June uh, because of this Eucharistic miracle, and it's the feast day of Corpus Christi. Now, the, it doesn't have a same day because it, it kind of follows uh, the Easter season and, and everything. So, but it migrates sometime in June. And so we celebrate Corpus Christi, the feast of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, because of a Eucharistic miracle, which is kind of cool. And so traditionally during, or, during uh, Corpus Christi, we'll do Eucharistic uh, processions and we'll have adoration and things like that. Um, so what this happened, this Eucharistic miracle occurred uh, kind of in a long time ago in the 8th century. And this priest, uh, Father Peter from Prague, kind of was on a pilgrimage to Rome, and he was kind of doubting the faith. And, and he ended up uh, going into Lanciano, and, and he, had, um, uh, he celebrated Mass, and the host began to bleed. Uh, ultimately, uh, that bleeding host was brought to the bishop in Orvieto, and, and the, the, the bishop did a whole series of examinations, etc., pronounced it to be a Eucharistic miracle, pronounced that there would be a, a feast day uh, that would be in the universal calendar of the church uh, called the, the Feast of the, of the Body and Blood of Jesus, uh, Corpus Christi, and uh, that Eucharistic miracle, uh, and that he would have all the leading artists and musicians create uh, music for this feast day. And so Thomas Aquinas uh, came along and he, he created uh, the most beautiful hymns that we have in the church. And we sing uh, Pange Lingua and um, parts of that with O Salutaris Ostia and Tantum Ergo at every uh, holy hour. So this, is, uh, this, this feast day uh, is very special uh, and it comes from this Eucharistic miracle that happened in the 8th century from Lanciano. On this feast day, it's really, really cool what happens in Italy is that they spend elaborate time uh, creating uh, these processional paths where there would be uh, this great procession with the, uh, with the, the Eucharist. Uh, and they would walk on these rose petals that would be placed in these intricate designs uh, just for this feast day as a sign of uh, faith and love for what transpired in this Eucharistic miracle in the 8th century. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I didn't realize that the Feast of Corpus Christi um, sprung from that. Like, I was reading over that that miracle as one of the, the first documented ones that I had no idea that that was a result of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, real quick, let me ask you, what would be the closest Eucharistic miracle um, to us, if a family said, you know what, we want to do a pilgrimage, we want to go and see where, wherever there's a Eucharistic miracle, where would be the closest one to where we are? You know, that's a good question. I think that the closest one, if I recall, uh, is in Mexico. I think uh, there was a Eucharistic miracle that just happened in uh, Mexico. 
en Tixtla, Mexico. T-I-X-T-L-A. Um, and this happened in 2006. Okay. So uh, that would be the closest one. We d I don't believe we have one in uh, the United States at this point, but I do think that will be coming um, because of our need for being bolstered in our Eucharistic faith. Wow, amazing and prophetic. Let's see what happens. <laughs> we'll see what, yes. So now it's time for our tools, Emily. So can you uh, bring some tools for our families? Gosh, I have so many tools today. Um, so I'm gonna just throw them all out there and you know pick whichever one works for your family. But I would say first and foremost, based on what we were talking about, um, I think families and people just need to learn more about the Mass and the Eucharist in particular. Just take some time to really study it. And I think that coming to our exhibition here at St. Joseph would be a great opportunity for that. So that's going to be Absolutely. my tool number one. Um, and I, say, I would say tool number two is spend time in adoration. You know, if we truly understand what it is, the body and blood, the true presence of the Lord, soul and divinity, um, then being able to come and adore Him in adoration during holy hours, I think that that would be provide great fruit for families. Um, and of course, come to mass in person. Yes. Be in the presence of the Lord. So those are great tools. Um, but some of the other ones that I, I know Father Jason mentioned earlier that I just want to remind was um, just bringing about the the significance of our faith. If you are in your car and you drive by a church, make the sign of the cross, um, you know, help to point them out to the young people so that they know what it is that we teach that he mentioned meals at homes, um, you know, just the symbolic breaking of bread and just reminding, reminding, you know, that the, the domestic church, who you are, um, it's not the body and blood of Christ, but it is just a symbol of, of the Lord and him being the bread of life. So I think those are great ones. And then I would say like the last one I want to just throw out there is just that reminder that we're all called to be saints. So me having a conversation with your children about blessed, um, Carlo, talking to them about their own life and how they see and feel God working in them and through them, and maybe just encourage them that, you know, God can and is calling them to be a saint as well. And con connected with that, Emily, I would say, uh, talk among your family about why you believe the Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus and, and your experience in, of the Holy Eucharist and, and how that helps you in life, how the bread of life uh, strengthens you to live a, a life close to God. Great. Well, there's a lot, a lot there. So, you know, we pray that you'll take at least one of those, if not more, um, to help your domestic church. Um, any other concluding thoughts, Father Jason? My last concluding thought is, uh, man, the Lord is so awesome that he will do everything he can to help us to know his love. Uh, and the Eucharistic miracles are just another way of him reaching out to us. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And we want to thank all of you for listening to this episode of St. Joseph's Workshop. We are all a work in progress, so be sure to tune in next time to gain new tools to help you build the church at home. And I pray that each of us grow in our love for the Holy Eucharist and for our Lord Jesus Christ. May mighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.